please give a warm welcome to Clarinda Harris and Bruce Sager. Check. Am I talking into the mic? Oh, and I'm actually I've actually been cued to give a little lead into the, this reading. Um, now, love and death seem to be the great preoccupations of writers. Nonetheless, while they assure us they don't want to pick a fight with Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, our poets this evening are going to get things rolling on a slightly lighter foot. They're going to begin with a small handful of poems about poetry lingering at what they tell us is the exotic intersection where the subjects of poetry and language and love collide. Clorinda. I do want to say that Bruce created a, a script out of poems that we were thinking about ping-ponging back and forth, and Shayla made the wonderful observation that in doing so, he had sort of created a whole another poem, a great big fat poem, and I, I, I love that concept, and, and I love Bruce. And I just want to say, too, that, that it was mentioned that there was a City Lit Prize endowed uh, that has my name attached to it, and from the start I said, make sure everybody knows, A, that I did not endow it, and B, that I will never ever judge it. And uh, I'm so glad, because just what I would have feared if I had been a judge happened. Somebody I have known and loved his entire life um, would be a winner, and that's a great joy to me, and I'm very glad that a, a really great poet uh, selected his work. This is called Poetry is What Fish Won't Eat, and it does appear in Louis Turco's most recent book of forms as one of the odd or invented forms. It's sort of like a sestina, but the repeated words are a sentence, and they're at the beginning. Poets is what fish won't eat. And this is a, a little explanation. The Irish memorized poetry before a voyage in case a shipwreck. Poetry in their bellies would keep fish from devouring them. And that was told to me by Esiaba Irobi, uh, a visiting professor at Towson. Poetry has become useful again. It is front page news. We do what we can to explain a world where soon fish and loaves, always far too few, won't feed the new multitudes doomed to eat bitterness morning, noon, and night. Eating in cities becomes rest and recreation, fish, raw, gorgeously slivered, black beef, poetry crafted salads, fine chateau nerf, won't keep our minds off terror or grief, is nevertheless a distraction from the question, what could we have done? What would have kept the death planes hanging fish-like in their clear blue tanks of sky, eating the miles between space and time? Won't some big voice say what in the bloody world is the prayer, spell, rhyme, poetry we should be chanting? Poetry is what fish won't eat, is what the ancient Irish learned by heart, what they carried in their stomachs. Fish flashing silver behind the eyes of the starved won't fill like potatoes or good brown brack. Eat for another hunger. Take. This is my body. Eat. And this is my mic. Does it work? <laughs> so tell us what it is like. Poems about poetry, what it is like. Here is a little poem set amidst its raucous brothers and sisters. If you turn the page too fast, 
you might miss it. When the other poems raise their hands, it says nothing. When they howl for food, it is silent. When they bray about paying their taxes, it looks down at its laces. It is like the frog by our quiet pond, glistening, bright as a crayon, still as a rock. This is called Talking Dirty. Hola. What is, what is he saying? <laughs> is he talking dirty? Oh, it, it's, a, it's a message, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just forge ahead. Uh, this is called Talking Dirty, and it's, uh, it actually appears in uh, the Hot Sonnets book, and, um, which I'm going to tout endlessly tonight. Talking Dirty. I wanted to write a Talking Dirty sonnet. Most probably Petrarchan, dirty words rhyme well, though dentally, a bit absurd, they should be labial. I get right on it, except that limericks have been there, done it, and those hard sounds might cramp the sweet first third of sex's poem, the slow swell, the blurred divide between perhaps and have to have it. And yet, what romance lacks a volta, vital or fatal? Love's halves, asymmetrical always, maintain a shaky poise. In time, may teeter toward a murderous punchline. The poem writes itself. We lie in trance, but love, fuck, trouble, hum their assonance. And you're going to, are you going to continue talking dirty? What romance lacks a volta, vital or fatal? You don't want to try to follow up on that. Well, it's like singing next to Katie Lang. What's it's about the tongue. I mean, that sounds sort of, you know. The civilization of the tongue. I like, I like to use, I like titles that do double duty, and civilization here might mean <clears throat> the taming of the tongue, um, or it might be talking about a culture, the civilization of the tongue. might be doing both. The animal of language. It has moved inside me for as much time as I can recall. It was small when I was small and grew a tongue upon my tongue so that my tongue, which might have played crucible to Mandarin or Greek, just a dumb gibber waiting to learn the sound of itself, learned. And what it learned was American English. And how it bathes in the bell of the mouth, this tongue, now cursing its mates, now a porpoise rolling in a tank, just as civil as the moment calls for and no more. It cannot bear restraint for long. It can bear nothing more than I can bear, not one iota more. How the tongue cracks its whip over the lion of the muscle, the bright owl of the brain. There is a whole menagerie it trumpets and defines, the stolid mule of the heart, the insect of the eyelid, the snake of the sex, the humble 
plated turtle of the mouth, its hard palate, its soft platen, its home, and how it strives to place saint and philosopher, policeman, politician, the one who would civilize that living zoo, the one who would set out on the tiny legs of my fingers to conquer that rapacious monster standing with one foot in the abbey and the other in plain Westminster. I mentioned Westminster because I live there, um, not in the abbey, but in the, in the little town about an hour from here. Uh, it's not a bad place to uh, use as your writing base, though I think Westminster Abbey probably bespeaks an unseemly uh, ambition. But it's on one foot in the Abbey, of course. Uh, and it's, it's not a bad place to raise children, and that was a crafty segue because we're about to move to the subject of children and to love, also in, in this case, the love of parent for the child, the love of child for parent, starting with two very short poems. The title of this one is longer than the poem. For my small daughter who is adopted, by the way, she's about to turn 45, so some of these poems go way back. For my small daughter who is adopted, this most surely is one flesh, this bathtub full of warm, wet melons. So I love that poem. I, I kept reading it to myself. Do it for them again, because it rolls around after a while. It's good. Do it again. Yeah. This most surely... Oh, it, it does take place in a bathtub. This most surely is one flesh, this bathtub full of warm, wet melons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've bathed babies. So mine is not 45 years old because Katie, and this is called Cleaning Katie's Bottom. Um, Katie is four. I'm sorry, Katie is uh, three. And she is now moving into, uh, into away from diapers. But this was written a year ago when she was well into diapers. Every dad will understand this, especially this guy right here. My two sons are here, Jeremy and... and uh, Nate, and I want to thank you guys for being here. And it was a lie what I said about paying you to show up. I just want to tell you until now. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is cleaning Katie's bottom. It's not enough to grab a diaper and slap it on. You have to wipe her. If there is a speck, you cannot miss it. It has to be clean enough to kiss it. So I don't believe a poem can be a whole lot better than the next one Clorinda's about to read. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to set you up too much, but it is one of my favorites. It is one, one of the favorites, one of my favorites for my whole life. And honest to goodness, it's one of the reasons I write poetry. I read this and I went, geez, I'd like to just inspire people to do something this simple and beautiful one day. So it's not uh, every day. It's short. You've got to pay attention because it's not every day you get to hear a three-month fetus speaking to her mother. And, and that is what's happening. Mom. Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Is that, is that going to... Maybe if I put it here... Um, what I'm trying to do with my bifocals is see the words and also talk into the microphone. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really try. Thank you, Anne. I appreciate that so much. Uh, no, I think, I think this okay. is fine. I'll okay. just jiggle. Okay, okay, I, I really appreciate that. This is the three-month fetus speaking. No longer worm or bud, I have grown toes, closed eyes, and a sex no one knows. 
though I seem to be giving no returns on your food, blood, kidneys, and cradling bones. I have already given you these three things. I have gone inside you deeper than any man. I have grown you breasts newer than your own at 13. I have made your sleep sweeter with my deep dreams. Thank you for writing that poem. Uh, Thank you for writing this next one about two... These aren't... Well, yeah, your two little... These are my two little ones, my four- and three-year-old. They're back for this last poem about children. Um, This is my two little ones with Spock and Hura. And yeah, I know it's Uhura, but when you're three, it's Hura. You two little ones are crazy. I made you, now you make me crazy with... His name is Spock. Her name is Hura. All day long today, relentlessly, why did we ever let you watch that slightly too grown-up movie? You liked that scene on the elevator. So did I. But the difference is, I don't enact it with dolls. Well, I'm 60. You are four and three. Now you have them upside down, kissing like in the Spider-Man movie. Now you are smacking them together like hamburger meat. Their faces join on their painted lips and their hips, sparking as if either of you might casually pass the spark we passed to you, as if either could know what a spark can signify. Wow. I love that image, and I'm so happy that Bruce rescued an image that I thought was unnecessarily extremely depressing in in an actually wonderful poem by Sharon Olds. But she has herself as a child smacking dolls together, pretending they're her parents, and their conjunction produced nothing but sparks of horror. And to have that image be beautiful again is is wonderful. Well, as soon as you pointed out to me... (laughs) Sharon Olds had used that image. I said, no, no, okay, I'm going to change the end of the poem. <laughs> it wasn't exactly that image at all. It was just something that I bet there are people in here who have smacked dolls together to make them you know, do one thing or another, fight, kiss, whatever. And it's, it's a thing that, I don't know, I can't talk for guys, but, I mean, you've got G.I. Joes. I mean, you, know, um, I mean, you have them fighting. But, but I just thought it was nice to have it in a poem where it was a beautiful spark, not a spark of, of disaster impending. And, and this is a poem of Bruce's that, that has a, a wicked cucumber in it. It does. I'd, I would, uh, I'd like to start in with a, well, I think we've, we've moved to the erotic love part of the evening. And uh, I'd like to start with a peculiar second half of a poem uh, about the dance between the sexes. Um, it, is, uh, it stands independently, stands as it were, independently of the, uh, of the uh, first half of the poem. And then I'm going to surrender the floor, the mic, to a deliciously and uh, somewhat loosely related series of exquisite love poems from Clorinda. Uh, no few of them done up in the sonnet form, so you've got to pay attention. But meanwhile, my, my silly poem, it's, uh, it starts, Meanwhile, as you might suspect part two of a poem could start. I like starting things with me. I love love that. I'm always going to do that from now on. Um, Meanwhile, at my work, a woman has given me a cucumber. Happy Monday. She grew it on her rooftop garden where the dirt had to be brought up in bags and the sun has an easy shot. The cucumber is wispy, excelsior to the touch. Still, it looks like it should weigh something, as though 
it were made to curry water the way the human body is made to carry it, to be mostly it, water. But somehow, where the body excels through its heavy composition in depicting the stolid weight of water, a fist of snow, an ice sculpture, this poor cucumber says, just air, weightless. The cucumber is long and thin, so thin as to avoid any cruel comparisons, because even in jest, no god would make a man as badly as he has made this cucumber. It is pathetic. But it is also long, snake-long, the kind of snake that you would find in a real garden, a real garden. So now this opens the question of real, for the garden is as real to the woman at work as work is real to me when I am sitting by my garden, wondering as I will this evening, scotch in hand, why this woman would give me a cucumber. <laughs> Don't make too much of it, Brucey boy. She gave one to everyone today. In fact, <laughs> yours was the skinniest she dispensed. <laughs> but don't make too much of that either. Drink your scotch. Uh, uh, don't make it. me I laugh. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, I'm not so sure. I think of this one as erotic, but I guess it kind of segues in that direction. Uh, the title refers to a, a Sun Paper article on a particular date uh, and to a block in on St. Paul Street, where I used to live. The last line of it is erotic as hell. Oh, oh there's that. I forgot that. Yeah. Hey, Anne, am I still on mic? It's still to me. It's soft. All right. Don't make me. I could do the school teacher voice without the mic. Oh, my God. Don't make me yeah, hurt then you. The, they're not going to let you do it because the podcast won't work, right? See, I'm doing your job for you. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll try to hit somewhere in between. This is called 2600 Block, October 6th, 2008. In the block where I'd lived, a baby's born and killed. He's found in a garbage can behind St. John's, whose brick and iron cloister winds to the alley. Its privacy was utter and well-known. My parents and I, beyond the table where we dined, could see old homeless George, who drank and mourned for FDR. When beaten, robbed, he warned us, place ain't safe. And this was 49. I grew to be a smart-ass kid who used to hide and seek and smoke in St. John's Dark, the one girl in a pack of boys. For a lark, they tore off my shirt to check, they said, the view. Soon we moved away. My peas complained of noise, and I relearned to like the salty smell of boys. And those, those boys in a different uh, set of limbs and bodies reappear in this poem. Uh, I think this one is also in the Hot Sonnets book. Thunder. They also serve who only stand and jeer. That seemed to be the theory of the boys haunting mom's diesel stop and convenience store on Route 50 in 52. So what if we were flaunting whatever budding bumps and nubbins jabbed through our size S shirts? It was a lightning revelation how our mere passing hocked up gobs of spit from deep in their gut till strings of mumbles dripped from the corners of their mouths? How many years before it would dawn on us that people actually did, for love, what the truck stop jockeys claimed they had in mind for us, I wonder, or what real tenderness drowned in diesel thunder? 
Bruce is so kind. I mean, he just slammed all these poems into into this little space where his poems should be going now. But uh, this is so hard to say that I'm going to practice saying it. Uh, I never read it aloud before. In a slivered space. In a slivered space between curtains, the neighbor's hedgerows, silvered by light of moon and the city, seem to be powdered with snow. Summer is ending in Baltimore with a luscious rush of simmer, shimmer, and false glimpses. In January, I'd have put on the wrong clothes to go walking tonight. Your teeth, crooked in the space between your lively lips, revealed as briefly as Gypsy Rose's naked body between veils, how wolf-like they appear. I have, been, I have never been able to tell whether what flashes in the silver snap of open scissor blades is real. And then this one will lighten things up a little bit because I don't know what the last lines of that last poem mean. I keep trying to figure it out, but I just, I don't know anymore. No, but the slivering and but the silvering, it's, it's it was so wonderful. This is a, a Match.com sonnet. We're too well matched and not at all, these guys. Love is not love or even like when the itch of them is like the itch of jeans, too tight in the crotch, too low in the so-called rise. It's true I like the color of their eyes, but like mine more, although we wear the same gray, brown, green, yellow, nothing, which we name for no reason known to me, hazel, we're wise to wend some other ways of thinking. Are my tits real? Oh, that's a good one, so endearing. Say, do you stuff your codpiece? No use asking now. I have my answer, and apparently you aren't about to take my own for truth. No matter, hun. About Viagra, look, it's half past one. And now, back to the serious and, and deep. And, yeah, and well, what, what do you do? filthy Bruce. What do you do when your wife says, write me a poem about love? <clears throat> you ask me for a poem about love as if this were the acid test of love the way sweeping a floor in your bare feet is the acid test of sweeping the way you ask a pharmacist for a pill and an hour later she hands you a vial but you don't want a metaphor you want a poem about married love good hard and true and all I can tell you is this is the hardest kind of poem this is the hardest kind of love yeah. it could have been worse I could have written her a limerick <laughs> of course sometimes love goes completely wrong <clears throat> pardon me that is the acid test of sleeping. I wish I'd said that. That's, yeah, I, yeah that, I, that, that's a good one, right? <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while, it just comes down, you know? So, uh, I apologize that you're in the room for this, but it's all right. It's called Again. We learned to fight over who starred in what over your father, my mother, yours, mine, over whether or not to tip this lousy waiter, how much to put away each month, and why, and whether 
there would be a Winnebago to ferry us thither when we retired. We fought over whether we might have another child, what we would do if one came to us one day despite ourselves. We fought over the weather and whether it would be okay to get a tattoo, if it would be okay to leave if you got one. We, we love to fight over Suzanne, Skipper, David, Christine, Fat, veins, gray hair, food, over what a woman suggested to me in jest, and whether you kissed some guy in a closet dead drunk ten years ago at a Christmas party, we fought, and we fought, and we fought, until one day, it meant nothing one way or the other whether you kissed that guy in the closet, until you didn't care what my bimbo had suggested, until food, gray hair, veins, and fat, all up and run off just like that. And to hell with Christine, David, Skipper, Suzanne, to hell with tattoos and the weather, and thus were we quit for good and all with issues abounding our ghostly unborn. No further questions on RVs, tips, or the future, all was gone, and we starred in our own movies then, just ours, no mothers, no fathers, just mine, just yours. All right, green eyes. But Bruce, is it all right if the imagery about the fat and the gray hair and, and the food and all of that becomes one horrific image and kind of clogs up the sink of my mind? I mean, that, I, I forgive you for writing that poem because I love it, but I cannot get past all that muck. All that muck. I think muck. that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, isn't, maybe. Isn't maybe. It? I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. I, just, I write them. You, you read them. This is called Sweet Talk Me on Valentine's Day, and I believe it's going to be, my, my voice is going to be intoning it with a little patter on a blog spot, astonishingly called crimesinpoetry.com on February the 13th, which I'm told is quite the coveted spot. I can just share a secret with you. I wrote this not only for one of the classes I was teaching because I do my own assignments, but I wrote it in the class. And... Um, the assignment was write a, a, a Valentine that Hallmark would really not consider. <laughs> Sweet taught me on Valentine's Day. Call me a monster. I'll straddle you with my Loch Ness legs, drip my hair on your gasping. Tell me my eyes are the color of pond scum. I'll open wide to flash you their fish. Call me your whore. I'll know you're thinking about Babylon, how I'm all seven of its wonders. Insist I'm a bitch, I'll snap at your parts till your bark's peeled to a whelped, to a, a whipped yelp. Or say, happy day, my ancient. I'm your whole history of mothers. And mothers work like this. Put something in, get something out. In, out, in, out. Baby, I'm a sweet machine. Now, Bruce, you might have a little different take on girls and what girls are like, well, or what yeah, girls I think, like. I, I think girls. that I think that the pattern here is pretty evident. You, <laughs> I set you up. You knock it out of the park. Then I put another serious one down. Then you do another funny one. Okay, oh, next time. Serious? Next time, it's gone the other way. Um, so this is called girls. It's called girls. It is so easy to say what they are like. They are like pippets prattling over small bits of bread. They are like ospreys prattling over small bits of fish. They are like fish. They are like foxes. They are like bread all fresh in the basket. 
They are like sunlight changing on the sidewalk. Their eyes are like oil when it gives up its colors after three days of rain. Their legs are like the silk ends of this necktie wrapped around my neck, hanging open over my shirt. They are like money in good times and will not stick to my fingers. They are like the air that swirls right by me in the stairwells, the wind that pays no respect to my hair, though I walk so carefully from my shining car. I have learned nothing in 55 years. That poem makes a liar of that last line. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read a line that, that Bruce wrote for me, but it's too good for me not to ascribe truthfully. This is Bruce writing this line for me. All right, what do we have to say about mortality and the hungers of the body, and can we get peanut butter with that? Well, I was going to say that, and then you were going to read the title of the poem. Oh. You stepped I made on a it. terrible boo-boo. No boo-boo. You want to you say it? All right, so what do we have to say about mortality, Clorinda, and, uh, and the hungers of the body? And can we get some peanut butter with that? Oh, yeah. Cat, obad, and lullaby with peanut butter. For each of three days, half a small rabbit has arrived at my back door, hardly bloody. I carry each one dangling like a fancy teacup from my forefinger and thumb, pinky extended to the trash can. For three days, Mrs. Katz, small and old, has been a lioness dozing sated in the sun. Each night, her gray fur smolders, sparks to the slightest rustle in the boxwood. I don't know, I guess I should go to bed instead of standing here at the back door, eating peanut butter right out of the jar, watching Mrs. Katz. But sometimes I just get so damn hungry. I love that poem. It's absolutely spectacular. It deserves a hand. I, I didn't know it was any... I, I sent it to Bruce. It's like, look at this piece of crap. Yeah, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> He's so good to me. Oh, my God. It's a, it's a spectacular poem. Folks, you should come up afterwards and fight over this piece of paper. I'll give it to whoever's like the, the least bloody at the end. It's, it's great on the page. It's a great poem. And, of course, it does speak to the hungers of the body and mortality. And now I'm going to speak once again a little bit more seriously about mortality. I promise I don't get any more serious than this the whole night. This is called The Real Infinity. You knew from the get that you needn't believe in heaven to pray. One need believe only in silence. It's vacancies. The abyss. Trust me, it is there always. But trust is hard. Belief is hard. And you have lived with yourself for so long, you know what you may not trust. What you may. You know where the earth is soft, where it sinks, where it gives way. Counsel with whatever you have shouted down, whatever you have shuddered or turned to a shade of itself. Counsel with the owl and the mouse, the dust and the air, and whatever moves in the air, moat, dusk, tree, the rain with its soft edges and the sun rising one time more in a rage upon the ledge of the sea. Infinity is 
neither the pretend genesis of a first line nor this reach for resonance after a last some shadow stretching beyond itself. It is not this make-believe. The real infinity is death. It pounds like the sea. The pound of salt that cellars every breath. Some of the best last lines ever. This takes a, a flippant attitude for something that toward for something that terrifies me, and um, I guess that's the way I deal with terror. Calendars in February. January's over. They've stopped arriving. For you, with best wishes from your mechanic, broker, pedicurist, bank, and the few you've committed to, you've made appointments on and turned a page. Just when the old terror seems unbearable, just when you're thinking again, which day will alter everything? What event or news may stop life dead in its shallow tracks? You observe, they'll keep coming full of days, new calendars, new days someone's going to die or get born. Their fate, their paper. And along the, the uh, calendar theme, this is, this is yet another sonnet, uh, and it's like several poems in this group that, that, that Bruce helped me pick, there is a lot of reference, direct or subliminal, to a significant other I had for 12 years, six of which he was in the various declining stages of suffering from a, 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 an extremely debilitating stroke. Old Man January. Barely revised versions of my old, old man are strolling the circular quay of Sydney, Australia, this humid day of down-under summer. Small wonder they all hail or hailed from England and Scotland, even I. Tourists all. Dress of the day is backpacks, hiking shoes, expensive brands, hats, baseball, or fake Aussie. We pray we'll save our skins. Each man walks with a wife. Per couple, busy hands, one to carry the shopping bags, one to clutch as for dear life the others. This is surely what they married for, though they didn't think so at the time. Old women deserve old men. How I miss mine. That's how you write a couplet, folks. (laughs) And then this one is called, this is the last in this group, I promise. This one is called Spendthrift, and it's for Dick Reed, but it has a little epigraph defining from the Webster's New Abridged Dictionary, spindrift, which is a word I have always liked and puzzled over. This is what the dictionary actually says, and it quotes from a poet in the definition. Spindrift noun, spray blown from a rough sea or surf. Quote, the mountainous seas crash down upon our decks, and the stinging, wind-driven spindrift burns its way into our flesh. And that's by a poet named Henry Vaughan. I hate the word squander, but I love the way you do it, the way you cast your gold into the wind and it flies back in our faces as mist, but but no, not so cold, as buttery salt melted and lovely to lick. With you standing over me naked, half lit by hall light, I think of your father tending the open hearth at the steel mill in his woolen shirt, the fibers kinking like hair in the 145 heat, while the molten slag set the Patapsco River on fire. Every Baltimore midnight, near where Marin's tugboats worked, and rich people's sailboats lay at anchor. I think of your sailboat, how I never met it, 
but still feel it under me sometimes, a phantom leg of the bay. On the wide white deck of your bed, I felt the sea crash and the wind-driven spin drift burn its way into my flesh. I, I, will, I will say one thing here. That, that is a good segue into Bruce's next poem called What I Kept because the couple of poems I wrote about Dick and a photograph are all I was able to keep of him after he was gone. Yeah. Every time I read that poem, I like it more than I liked it the time before. It's really growing. It's growing in my estimation. Um, So we've all been through life, and we keep things. This is what I kept. I left grade school. And I've got to stop for just a second. Some of you I know, because I can tell by the color of your hair, remember who Burt Parks is or was. He was the Miss America man. He was the fellow who sang it every year. He honestly came to our grade school, and this actually happened. Poets lie, but this is the truth. I left grade school, and I kept a picture of the Miss America man, Burt Parks, squatting next to me in the schoolyard. He was wearing the mask of minor celebrity. I was wearing rabbit ears and a dash of paint on the tip of my nose. I kept a notion of the absurd and a vague recollection of the weather the day absurdity came. I left high school, and I kept a packet of algebra tests that all say 100 across the top. I kept the nausea of existential decay and a library copy of Roger. I kept a yearbook with a roadmap to my failures, their long 60s hair and their brilliant eyes. I left Johns Hopkins early, and I kept my tail between my legs. I left over objections, and the dean of students asked me why, and I kept my mouth shut. And as for the real reasons I left, they kept to the shadows the trees made on the quad. Father died, and I kept the Zeiss binoculars and his colored ribbons from the war. I kept his undersized golf jacket that would fit if only I lost a little weight. I kept the scar on my fourth finger from my experiment with his bandsaw. Mother died, and I kept the two spooky porcelain miniatures she played with back in the 20s when she was a girl. The world was roaring, and she was playing with dolls. And when people ask me why I have dolls in my office, sometimes I walk to the shelves and hand them over with caution, warning about the fragility of their limbs. The basement flooded, and I kept the mildew in the corners and the damp stains running around the walls. I kept a box of poems that were no good and now stick together like men smoking outside an employment office. I kept all of the ideas I could scrape from the boxes, and I kept some scraps of paper from the repairs. Here, I said to my wife, these are receipts, keep them. I kept all of nature's wet palette when it marches on a home. I kept the hole in my insides where my gallbladder once squeezed out its awful juices. I kept the acid brush of time 
and painted my face year in, year out. I kept out of the way of trouble. And so I made it to my sixth decade. I kept quiet. I kept up, step, watch, bad company, house. I kept at it and at it. I kept going. I kept off the grass unless no one was looking. And I kept my temper. And at times the peace, but the peace can be hard to keep. I kept the end in sight. The end always keeps. I kept a diary, but one day it was full, and I didn't buy another. I kept my seat, unless an old person was standing, and most times I kept my job, but not always. I kept the change, but lost the dollars. Kept a plant until I killed it. I kept a woman, and then another. I kept a secret for almost an hour. I kept in line, I kept good time, I kept the rhythm but lost the line. The music was lost in the sweep of the hours, the music was lost in the Sabbath burning, and still I kept what I kept. I kept the Sabbath when I was a child, and my thoughts were the thoughts of a child. I kept a light on until it flamed. I kept up on the notion of light. I kept my word when I learned to keep it. I kept a list of how many times I'd broken something and how many times I'd had something broken. But it's not really a good list to keep. One day I lost it. And after that, I, I kept the tally to myself. Wow. That is so good. Thank you. Oh, I love that poem so much. It's, it's called What I Kept, and I think... I think that poem is in here. And you know what? Since you, since you all seem to like it, I'm going to read the... Uh, it's a very short poem that follows it. <clears throat> it's called Footnote. Figure that. Well, you know that writers lie. Some is true history, some gray, some is made up from whole cloth for the sake of the narrative. There was no flood in the cellar. And I never kept the Sabbath. But the part about Burke Parks is entirely true. The paint was tough to remove. Mom had to scrub and scrub. As for Dad, the man would not have known a bandsaw from a bandstand. The chance of his owning one would have been about the same as a comet hitting the west wing of the White House at exactly 10 after 2 this afternoon and killing Millard Fillmore. Perhaps more slender still. That's a grandfather you remember. I get it. My cellar flooded constantly, so, so yeah, there's a symbiosis. But, you know, that's like it. the best metaphor I ever had it was is. the poems sticking together, oh, it's, like it's men outside an employment. So good. So and, good. I got it on, and I got Did it on the... Did you hear all the crowd response? Yeah. Never, and it never happened, yeah. right? I was, it's, it's, yeah. See, that's, that's what's fun. That's what's fun about writing. So I hear you have a poem about New Orleans, baby. <laughs> Tell us about the Big Easy. It's not one of your best segues, but... Okay. <laughs> but I do not complain because that's the one. This is, this is a Sestina, and I deliberately picked... Uh, six of the most unpleasant words I could. Um, I love New Orleans, and I've spent a lot of time there. And, and uh, uh, but the Sestina may actually encapsulate some of the the tourist side view, almost loving everything raunchy and sweaty, etc. About it, the, it, the a, a young man's voice interrupts the Sestina twice: once in the middle and once at the end. Big Easy Trick, September two thousand five. 
Pontchartrain, you filthy fee. You always wanted to suck the city back into your stinking hole. Your juices thick with fish guts, chicken heads, blood, beer piss, and shit. We understand. We loved that shit. Danced in it, drank its stink, sold our drunken heads down the river thick with sex and music, sucked it in, guzzled our fill, and more than filled, overflowed in alleyways thick dark. Grins pressed to her heads like guns. We were suckers for convoys talking shit, pocket-picking in the stink. Ten dollars say I can tell you exactly where and when you got those shoes you're wearing. All that's left today is stink. The, river, the city's a river of shit and sickness. We can't get our heads around it. We're too filled with how it used to be in the thick of it. Happy, drunk-ass suckers. So we're begging you, suckers that we are, when the shit sinks and new concrete thickens your waist, to keep your stink and ours ripe and ready to refill the streets. We bend our heads. You got those shoes right here on the pavement of Bourbon Street. Tonight, July the 10th, year of our Lord, 2005 in the fine city of New Orleans. So, yeah, I got something on New Orleans. <laughs> well, your New Orleans poem, it didn't engender mine, but it certainly invited it to this party. So my New Orleans poem was written um, based on a photograph that I saw in the Sun paper. And I told you I, I, don't, I don't read the Sun. This goes back to about the time this fellow was born. And it was a, uh, it was the, one of those interior uh, sections of the Sunday Sun, and had a, it had a wonderful color photo. I get, uh, maybe they don't. I don't read the Sun much anymore. <laughs> so uh, it, it had a wonderful color photograph of a guy, a fella, and he was he was playing the saxophone, and and um, this is before, way before the disaster of Katrina. So this is not a typical New Orleans poem. <clears throat> but I hope it speaks to the heart of the city. Um, here is a photograph taken of a man in a red turban. It caps his head like a mushroom. There is nothing else about him like a mushroom, like a helmet, though there is, I think, a note of civil unrest. Nothing so uncivil as resistance, just this queasy compliance, mocking and big, its residue like vernix. Pinned as he is by the paw of destiny against the pole of a street lamp. Yaza. He is blowing his saxophone from the far left of the composition across the interval of a wall, well sponged by the seasons. And ain't we all? The notes run up and over some huge arched doors running off to the right. They're unchecked by any horizon. They will roll as long as your imagination. So maybe into the next room, or maybe all the way to the quarter itself. Oh, life, says the left leg of the man, a note or two ahead of his body, leading him forward and pushing him back all at once. Oh, life, says the seesaw saxophone predictable as the fall of light, but the gravel of cancer shuffling in thin soles at the back of its throat. Oh, life, say the double doors, walk through me. 
Take the hands of someone you want and slow dance before me against the cancerous chords. Make a sweet silhouette. Make music with your feet. Make love on the walk. Make love in the street. Armor yourself with a thick, thick skin. Lift your chin. And then walk right through me, baby. Walk through me. To lead us into the conversation part of the evening, um, one final short poem from each of us. Clorinda's was published in the most prestigious poetry magazine in the world. Mine was run off on a laser printer in my basement. I got lucky once. The Tragedy of Hats by Clorinda. And this also, this is a true story, uh, and it's kind of kind of sneaks up on you. And if you have not watched uh, Sunset Boulevard two or three hundred times, as I suppose I have, Norma Desmond appears in this poem for a moment, and she's the character played by Gloria Swanson. And at one point, she has a, 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 a New Year's Eve party for just her and the guy. And uh, at one point, her little cocktail hat falls off, and and she's it's all over. I mean, yeah. The tragedy of hats is that you can never see the one you're wearing, that no one believes the lies they tell, that they grow to be more famous than you, that you could die in one, but you won't be buried in it, that we use them to create dogs in our own image, that the dogs in their mortar boards and baseball caps and veils crush our hubris with their unconcern, that Norma Desmond's flirty cocktail hat flung aside left a cowlick that doomed her, that two old ladies catfighting in Hutzler's better dresses both wore flowered straw. Of my grandmother, the amateur hat maker, this legend, that the hold-up man at the mercantile turned to say, Madam, I love your hat, before he shot the teller dead who'd giggled at her homemade velvet roses. Oh, happy tragedy of hats, that they make us mimic classic gestures Inspiring pleasure first, then pity, then fear. See how we tip them, hold them prettily against the wind, or pull them off and mop our sweaty brows like our beloved foolish dead in photographs, like farmers plowing under the ancient sun. Appropriately, our final poem before we break is called When to Shut Up. <clears throat> When to shut up. My friend Mike is a chef, and so it is usually worthwhile to drop in and say, hey, what's cooking? One day I drop in and he says, this poem is cooking. I've been waiting for you. I want you to take a gander. The poem is full of ginger and lemon verbena. It smacks of finger root. If it were a painting, it would look like fingers growing out of the central stem of a fine piece of glassware sitting in the middle of a marquetry table under the barrel vault of a dining hall in some Alsatian castle. I venture this. Cut the shit, he tells me. I could use a little perspective here, but all the perspective I can conjure is the delicious and terrible collision of lemon and ginger on the rough inland waters of the poem. 
There is no water in my poem, says Michael. I know, I say. And there you have it. Wendishon. So now we're going to do a little bit of Q&A. Do you, if you would like to sit, you, can, you could take your mics with you. Otherwise, you can just stay. I just want you to be comfortable. I don't know if you're tired of standing so long. Um, can you still hear? I don't, see, I don't oh my God. these things really well. Can I, <laughs> I, can I sing a little? Okay. I didn't know we yeah, had I mean, this option. If you'd this like is, to this sit, is good. That's fine. Um, and um, we don't um, I'm just going to kick uh, the Q&A off um, by asking a question about poetry and work, because I think you represent a very interesting contrast um, in that, Clorinda, you, you, your work, your jobs have been very much involved with writing. You have had your teaching um, and also publishing Brickhouse books, whereas Bruce um, is a corporate officer in a systems integration firm, so you're more in a world um, not so much of poetry, obviously. So I just thought maybe each of you could talk a little about um, how you think your work feeds into your, or influences your poetry. I'm going to really turn this over to, am I actually making audible sounds? I, I'm going to turn it over to Bruce because in, in my case it's so obvious. I mean, you know, I, I've taught poetry, I am an editor. Um, I am going to have to say at this point that I edit other things from uh, not just poetry. As a matter of fact, I write fiction too, but, but sitting in the back of the room is Clarence Brown, whose novel, Needs, just came out from Big House Books, and I've very seldom been as excited by a book that we've brought out. It is, it's, it's simply dumbfounding, and uh, um, it's very exciting for me to deal some, with something that's also uh, sort of out of, out of Brick House Books' comfort zone. But everything I've done kind of is within kind of the large structure known as, I don't know, literature or something. So, Bruce, you're the one that has both sides of your brain working. I only have one side of the brain. Well, work doesn't feed poetry, and poetry doesn't feed work. Uh, perfection of the life or perfection of the art, neither. Uh, seven kids, a wife. A business that is very, very hungry mistress. About midnight, I might get to sit down and start tickling the keys. Oftentimes, till three or four in the morning. Um, little about work creeps into poetry, and relatively little poetry creeps into work, but... I did have the option of running off some poems at work today, so I did get to read uh, that long poem that you know about that, that everyone else is going to be subjected to at the end to uh, one, of my, one of my employees, and she was impressed. That's about it. They don't really cross. I wish there were a greater intersection. I think Wallace Stevens observed much the same as an insurance executive in Connecticut. Um, yeah, no, no cross-fertilization. <laughs> Um, does anyone, would anyone else like to ask a question? I'm going to, this might be, um, seem a little annoying, but I'm going to repeat your question so they can be podcasted if, if anyone has one, or I can hand you the mic. Yeah, please. 
I know she can do it. I'm not so sure. I'm quite convinced very frequently that I've forgotten how, in fact, Lila sitting back there who works with Brickhouse Books uh, heard me rant yesterday about how I've, I've just forgotten how to do it, that's all. But um, as soon as I'm teaching a poetry course again or, or um, have a midnight, um, a, a sleepless midnight, I, it, it, it does come back. Um, I have to tell you something, and I've heard other women writers say this too. I started writing poetry more than I... I, I originally was a fiction writer, and I started writing more poetry and less fiction because I had little kids, and I could do things in shorter takes. I could get my arms all the way around a poem and feel that I could take it somewhere and work with it and dress it up and you know, clean it up and polish it and then trot it out, whereas fiction is, it was just a much, much slower process. So really, uh, as for why write, though, there was there was a an ad campaign uh, I think from a, a major book publisher that I saw in the halls of Towson University a big poster that said if you couldn't write would you die and I thought well that is so the wrong question because the point is you would have to actually kill me to make me not write I had no paper I had no hands I I do it all in my head I had no mouth I memorize it um, I click it out and t with my toes, or I would never let it out. It would be a closed circuit, but I would still do it, if you can call that writing, doing it all in your head. And I do write almost everything all in my head before, before it hits paper. So yeah, you, you would have to kill me to make me not do that. It's just what I do. And so it's an interesting question. I remember specifically sitting in 10th grade uh, class, and you asked what drove me to, you know, why did I start writing poems? So I was looking at this uh, textbook somebody had, <clears throat> and it had the name of four poets on it, and it was, it was uh, Keats, somebody, somebody, Yeats, or Kate's, somebody, somebody, Yeats, and I couldn't reconcile the spelling and the, the pronunciation, and I thought, now, what the hell is going on here, you know? So I... I, I, I picked up the, I had a copy of the book. I was looking at someone else's, but I had my own. And I started to read through it, and I went, Jesus, this is all you have to do to get famous? This is so easy. <laughs> oh, was I wrong. <laughs> but I was in 10th grade. So I was drawn in by that, 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 that cover, and I started to write. And then I thought, well, I really would just like to get one in a book. And that's what started me. I, I got to say, though, you, you, you expanded the question, interestingly, Clarinda. You said two things I want to comment on. First of all, you talked about writing it in your head. And for sure, there are things that occur in poem. They're just bits. Everyone says this. That I, anyone I've ever heard on a podium talk about this, the things we talk about in private. There are probably many writers in the room. You all know this to be true, that, that something comes at you and it just won't leave you alone. So... I mean, my poor wife, I get up at 3 in the morning. She's like, where are you going? I'm like, I got to shh, shh. I got to get downstairs. I got to you know, the next morning, of course, it's pure, it's garbage. But, but it seemed sensible at 3. So the, uh, the, uh, the other comment I wanted to make was that I, I am not a, a poet, but a really, really, really teeny percentage of the time. I am a poetry editor. See, I, I type, the poems come out for me about as fast as I can type, and I type pretty fast. So they, what I capped is like, really quick, you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes, it's all done. Yeah, it, it, was, it wasn't 25 minutes. 
But then there's the editing and the editing and the editing and the editing and the editing. 60, 70, 100, 200, 250, 300 readings. And just to, just to change one word and just to clean it enough so you get to, take, to step away from it long enough so that it's clean so you can, you can hear it again. And, and then to immerse yourself in it again. So I've got hundreds, I mean literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of poems that I'm dipping back into now that I wrote back in the 80s, I guess, 90s. And they seemed, you know, like they were finished at the time. Of course, they were abandoned, as Valerie famously said. But um, now I'm taking them and I'm just brutal because I don't have anything invested in them anymore. No, there's no more emotion. So I'm just ripping out the good parts, or what I think are the, the better parts, decent parts, and salvageable parts, throwing the rest away, and coming up and, and creating new poems out of them. Um, sometimes pretty recognizable, other times less recognizable. But it's so much fun to, to just take them. I, I don't have to write a new line for the rest of my life. I've just got this, all this stuff in my basement. So, so uh, yeah, I think that, that probably... Not every poet. I mean, uh, Allen Ginsberg felt that everything that he put down was sacred and he wouldn't change it. But most poets, I think they'll admit to being more poetry editors than poets. You know, so. Well, there was a, a bumper sticker on one of my Volkswagens back in, when Volkswagens were way cool, and the bumper sticker said, Ginsberg revises. So, yeah. He swore he didn't. Yeah. Okay, I have 1,234,567 questions for um, Clorinda. Thank God. But I'll settle with just one. That your grandmother's hats. Did the guy really shoot the guy dead? Yes. yes. Do you have any hats? Could I have one? <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I do have a couple of her hats. I'm always getting in trouble. I want one of those hats. He didn't shoot the teller because she had insulted my grandmother's hat. But, but he was going to shoot, I mean, he shot her because he was holding up the bank and he wasn't a very deft hold-up man. But yeah, she really was in line. It really all happened. And, and then after, after the teller was shot and, you know, the, the sirens were screaming and police were coming. It was on Greenmount Avenue. So then uh, as now, the police are always at the ready. And so she just turned around and toddled out. Where are and, we? Yeah. Where? Um, it was. It, I think it's now an auto parts shop. It's near Thirty Third, but up a little bit. Yeah. It was okay. a mercantile. Yes. Yes. I thought. I think the beauty of it. I think the beauty of it is how not how deft. I do lie though. Oh, <laughs> that's not a lie. Oh, 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 that was scripted for me by Bruce. She doesn't, she doesn't, but, she's not um, responsible for so that. So you can take that up with him afterwards. Yeah. Well, no, what, we said, what we said here was, um, is that even though love and death are the major themes of poetry, we don't want to, we don't want to pick a fight with those good Russian fellows. Um, and I acknowledge a lovely one who's sitting in the back that I was speaking with earlier. We said that we, we were going to start without the themes of love and death, but we we're going to write, first start with the theme of poetry. So that's all. We really weren't looking to pick a fight with anyone, or maybe we will later. Who knows? So um, uh, your deft, your deft, uh, um, or not so deft, held up man was nonetheless the most polite one I had run across in quite a while. Down. Yes, very calm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we have a, a whole bunch more questions, but I just need to pause for a second because if we um, if we take all these questions, we may have to truncate the latter part of our.
What time do you have? Because um, I have about twenty uh, of. I have about twenty of. It's do you, do. Would you rather do more Q and A and less, and do a little bit less of the poems at the end, or? Well, it's up to you. Mine is like one piece, so it's. Kind you of don't want to break it down, yeah, okay? Okay. Well, we we'll just, we may run over a little bit. Okay. Um. Uh, or we could run five minutes late. Yeah, that's okay. Five minutes. Okay. I run a publishing company. It's been around since, uh, I actually incorporated it in 1973, so it's been around a long time. And yes, I mean, we accept book-length manuscripts of poetry, which can be very short, and book-length non-poetry. Uh, Clarence is 250 pages, and I, I don't think we've done one longer than that ever. But yes, I mean, ev- anybody is welcome to submit. Yeah, and the thing about Brickhouse, and I will now brag, it uh, it does something. Lila is one of the people that does this. She's an assistant editor at Brickhouse. She, uh, we we write very extensive comments, even for manuscripts that we can't bring out because we have a very limited budget. But we give you lots of feedback, so do consider submitting. Um, okay, a gentleman. Mm-hmm. because I, I try not to preach and I have very little faith that my words directly can affect the world but I care about the world a whole lot and, and I care about other human beings and my place in it so this answer, I, I guess the answer to your second question is does it define and give meaning to for me everything? Yes I mean, yes yeah, Definitely not a pulpit I mean, I write for myself. I write for an imagined few people who might be reading what I'm writing. One of them sitting there. But, um, but uh, I <clears throat> can't say that I have any particular drive to push the words out, which is, frankly, one of the reasons I've, I've been around in the orbit of the poetry orbit in this city since 1969. And I've probably, I've certainly done readings in, in each of those decades, but... I don't. I don't push myself out there very much. It's not, you know something. It's it's just. It's not a matter of expression. I think that. Um, I don't. I don't really care what the message is. I care about saying it right. That's all. In fact, the last poem I'm going to subject you to, is probably the most difficult. And they've they've very kindly agreed to pass out copies of the poem so that uh, you can follow along. Because Lord knows I've been in your seat and I know how hard it is to follow a tough poem with your ears. So you're going to get to do it with your eyes tonight. But it's really a pretty, it's a pretty poem. You're going to like the roll and the boom of it, I bet you. And that's, it's more interesting to me to just create an interesting 
I want it to I, I want it to sound right, and I and I and I'm, I follow it. It goes. I don't know where a lot of them are going to land, man. I mean, I just don't know. I just follow it. And it goes here. It goes there. You get lucky, or you you know, or you don't. Sometimes you land in Vegas, and sometimes you land somewhere in the middle of a dark ocean. Okay. Um, I know people still have more questions, but could could we maybe maybe you can answer after? Sure. Words. I'm just um, our security guards don't get upset if we if we linger in the building way over time. So, um, and that was also a really nice seg to your last poem, anyway. Um, and so, yeah, thanks everyone. Um, we're gonna, we'll move on to the final poem reading. So Clorinda has a wonderful poem here, which I'm going to stall for her on until she gets back up to the podium. Oh, I was planning actually to say I'm not going to do it at all. It's a, it's a poem in 14 tiny little parts, but I'll just read one part because it, it will make sense because it has to do with the human voice and uh, it's segue into the easily uh, by my having said that, that I, was, I spent a good bit of time with someone who suffered from a complete loss of his ability to speak and he had been a, a trial lawyer so that was kind of horribly ironic um, and oh, okay. sorry it's just it's being yeah thank you um, this the whole the whole collection the whole bunch is called Vox, which as you know means voice. Uh, this is just one small part. No, I'm not. I'm just going to read this. It'll take me two minutes. No, nope. I'm older and better looking. <laughs> this is the twelfth part. Vox begins in time to re or unname the things of its world. The old woman forgets mother, uses it for daughter or dog, forgets stomach, head, knees in the doctor's store. The old man calls for a cab to pick him up at his house. His shoe, my shoe, my shoe, goddammit, where I live. Vox makes lists and loses them. Can't keep track of the scrap the stroke victim carries in his pocket, bearing the penciled name of what felled the great stalk of his voice. Yet sweetly, some words grow new flesh, as when Emma morphs from elderly sister, stiff with the gristle of the actual, to granddaughter, light as blancmange, even alive, as in, how are you? Alive, thanks, sucks a secret under its tongue. May mean, besides poor sleep, rebel body parts, brittle teeth in reeking mouth, a thing so green it's yellow or white, willows budding in March, zoysia grass, like kudzu, that goddamn Jap revenge, lily of the valley's carillon, tinkling over leaf mold. And the voice dies at the end of the poem, but I don't think I need to do that part because I want to hear... Would you just do part 10? It's short and it's wonderful. And I've got it right here. Oh, I have it somewhere. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, I like this one too. Yeah, it's really good. (laughs) Vox has a rare moment of introspection. The tongue is deaf but isn't always dumb. 
broad pink stippled with little nipples, so sexy, really, the way it wiggles in one mouth or another, lapping the sweet low tones. It can lick the pointed ends off stuff too shrill to swallow sometimes. Other times it lolls in mud like a big pink pig, gruff and stinking, thinking behind a snouty smile of eating babies. It's smarter than a dip for most other languages for that matter, and it's not likely to be trusted with secrets, which it rolls around the mouth of, leaving many hot dogs, rocks the teeth, sticks out, The English poet uh, Philip, Philip Larkin once commented, I'm just going to read a brief comment from Larkin, uh, hearing a poem as opposed to reading it on a page means you miss so much. The shape, the punctuation, the italics, even knowing how far you are from the end. Well, I can tell you this much. We're precisely one poem uh, in about 10 minutes from the end. Uh, so, folks, it is like the end of the tunnel. Uh, I mention this because um, uh, the, sense of, uh, the sense of where things end, because um, <clears throat> even, poet, even though poetry itself may uh, seem at times to be less than, uh, uh, less than durable, um, poetry readings can seem eternal, but I think if you can see the end of what you've got inside, it makes it a little bit easier. Um, so one, just briefly, one supposes that this poem, which is different from the other poems I wrote tonight, um, this poem has something to do with the subjects of revolution, and tyranny, and despotism, and, and perhaps the ambition as well, because people sometimes take it upon themselves to fly very close to the sun, and the poem is called The Indulgence of Icarus, and sometimes these folks end up in spider holes, were featherless, uh, we would call it captured Southern Hussein, we would call it storybooks. So that's completely um, except as an example of the condition um, gone wild. I might also mention just very briefly that Neville Chamberlain is cited uh, in one of the two epigraphs right at the beginning of the piece. Um, Chamberlain, you recall, uh, was known as the uh, Great Peaser uh, due to uh, his policies regarding Hitler in the uh, late 1930s. Um, but history looks at a time in its life because um, Chamberlain uh, also made one, uh, one absolutely brilliant action. Um, he stood, stepped out of the way and uh, Winston Churchill taken over his denominators because uh, there were many of the worst decisions in history. And one of them developed to subject Georges-Jacques Danton to the routine. I mentioned this because the other decorative history groups into the other decorative So, um, for reasons beyond me, we start this time with a scientist coming home and reporting to his wife that he's witnessed feathers floating up in the sky. I'm not sure if you can make those here. And because he is a scientist, he measures his findings twice and then twice more. Scientist. Uh, where the poem heads after that, I'm going to leave you to judge, and we now have eight minutes we run. <clears throat> the indulgence of the police. Show my head to the people. It is worth seeing. This big time. 
We should seek by all means in our power to avoid war by analyzing possible causes, by trying to remove them. They mean the establishment of personal contact with the dictators. This would never He takes the skins of the boulevard area to call out to the boulevard park that smidge in the sky against which Apple is playing. It takes the needle of silence, I think, to name it so death. With such precision, such knowledge of the classic, such a peasant, and such a thought, such a sense of the mathematical, a sense of dread, not dread. To come home, shirtless and sweaty, days long, to sit down with the milk on the table of this little truth. Honey, trust me, dishonestly. The suspension of ferries, twice measured, floating from the sky and twice again, and what it must mean to measure so and so hear the feathers banged up against them. The plane can see, closing on a cell door on one. He would fly from his own skin. And in that way, bring us heartfelt as a nation to our knees in the person of just one man. Tearing up on our bodies. The stain, which side of the bed, our graves, buttered on, bolstering, and later bring us to the very bar where, uncoupled, this young one eyes himself in the waxes its and there is even swagger to his outline as he measures the tiles and the ceiling, team by team, challenging the constellations and voice breast, artfully wrought, challenging the arched cloth wrapping its thighs around his uvula. I am just this X on your skylight. But tomorrow, I should fall beyond the sun. Is this the way to be in charge again? Dark and spiral. Known in such years, yet impossible to know. Somewhere in Arkansas, calls for a larger teaspoon. Somewhere an old man speaks to a child and speaks her from the corners of the street. Somewhere from the face of the car, the numbers snake rapid and round the serpent could Bobbing his head before the street, and the decks spreading somewhere beneath the mountain's feet of the froth dispersing, bending the bubbled plants in the dark town, and there is a mob in the middle, and smaller than the reality was anticipated, and yet never expected, by someone to tell the speculation. Their taste for their Ruling beyond refined and quickening in the dark to passion. The death of passion is reason. The context of reason is data, where the steps to the chamber must be reckoned and negotiated, where the mind must contemplate somehow that is as it ascends with the human body, the legal requirement to cut, to perish. To move such grave blocks of this planet as would confront the eye before the citizen attempt only upon his duty. And if steps in daylight lead up to a measure of conformity to some higher offer, 
steps in nightlight beat down in farthest realism, and the warm arm of gravity extends about the citizens' shoulders, a cloak on crook of comfort and disposes with a conspiratorial wink, a nod, a whisper across the knuckles, certain half-truths about passion. passion. Context of passion is mentality, a process whose midpoint is hunger. Perhaps, perhaps the hunger of the state, perhaps the hunger of the sandpaper, perhaps the simple hunger of the page. Against the long scroll of the stars, screamed like a shot of the gypsy fire and sweetness. The boulevard hungers, and for no known reason, and yet for every reason, Teeth are read and words are reaching already upon the sidewalk, all under us. And the salt, the blood, and teeth, and slain lives, glass, the mashing of haberdashers, the spell, glass, and scissors, glass, and books, glass, and tomorrow's sugar. The rain pouring the pot bricks, yelling from that royal seascape all the way up to this local puddle, the simple side of the moon through which only the food was made to draw back life, that blood, and that school. Their arms spotted, flattened by children in big glasses, counting these things for which there are no. And the long drift down through the sea, tedious intestines, bells and balls of crystal, telling of things past and of things to come. This hard, bright, frail genius ranges itself this way and that, like young Missy and Miriam, and in just this way, on the water. And this is just the it starts. Arrogance in the border. Striker, where there should be a basement of self. Salt on the ground, a good case calls for the penny, a measured response. But the moon will go and come around again, according to some mother's action. The bells, though the music again, and with your bravest sea, the punish box, the broken basement rings, the underlying body sliding even to death beneath the failure of the arithmetic, the failure of father and blacks, the failure of the spider hollow, the pure sentence of heat. And the bells give way to a vacant block, give way to a crackle and hiss, the bodiless embrace of a sleeper stitched to a high hole and shadows in the strings of and mistress hung by a million mm -hmm. soldiers more than a million. About a hundred million. Mm -hmm. And so a wing of these million stops stands empty of our good man down with the heart. A crowd gathers. And the leaves chase the leaves in the hot spot. Live too long by a year or two, too much time and so much circumstance. A waxing of the 
isn't that just exactly. Is that's not exactly the way it starts, a little nothing, a little time is nothing, starting off doing his mustache. Um, Clarinda and Bruce for the poems and the conversation has been wonderful. And thank you to everybody for coming. Um, we hope that you'll come to some of our other events. I'll have a good evening.